Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. We're recording this on February 2nd, 2017, and you're listening to episode 18. Politicoast is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we're at Politicoast Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. The 2015 election will be the last federal election using first past the post. Let's dive into the first segment, electoral status quo. We learned this week that Trudeau's not actually going to keep his promise at all on changing the electoral system. He gave a new mandate letter to Karina Gould, the incoming Democratic Reform Minister, and explicitly left out changing the electoral system. And it's not clear if he meant this to just sort of go under the radar, or if it was a more deliberate and we're going to shout it out. I mean, everyone expected the Liberals to renege on this. We talked about how they'd been fumbling it for so long. But did we think this is how they were going to do it? No, not at all. I was kind of expecting they would slowly drag their feet on implementing the uh, the recommendations of the committee and their report. They'd talk about more studies needed, more consultations, maybe do another BS survey, and then, oh, look, it's 2019, and we didn't quite get around to it, but, you know, trust us, our heart's in the right place on this one. But instead of this one, it's a point blank, changing the electoral system will not be in your mandate. And that just raises a whole bunch of other questions, such as, why are we finding out about this in a mandate letter? It's probably one of the weirdest things, because it both looks deceptive, and at the same time, people will read it, so but only the people who really care about politics. It's a weird thing where you're trying to both downplay it, but you know it's going to be picked up on, and you know it was headline news when it broke. Well, and then in the House of Commons for question period, he had Karina Gould field the questions. He didn't even stand up there and sort of defend the decision. It was up to her to basically go, yeah, Canadians weren't that interested in this question. And we didn't find that there was any consensus. And so when Trudeau finally started getting microphones in his face, he talked about those exact same talking points, but then he also brought up the divisive referendum he didn't want and the, quote, augmentation of extremist voices in the House, which is not in the best interest of Canada right now, sort of alluding to some systems that could lead to Hitler rising because he was elected in a proportional representation system. But it's almost like he didn't read the special committee's report where it would have talked about that and how you can allay that in different systems. Yeah, and I think uh, if the last four months have shown anything, it's that a first-past-the-post system definitely doesn't stop crazy, unqualified, and slightly extremist people from getting elected to high office. So that talking point should have died on November 6th and never been mentioned again because it's blatantly untrue as the tire fire to our south aptly illustrates. So their handling was just flubbed, I think, which is a nice fitting end, I guess. They spent a whole year and a bit flopping around, trying to set up a committee, changing how the committee was formed, not really giving the committee the mandate to actually settle this question, just to like look into it a bit. And that's, I think, the most galling part of this whole thing, is that 
they're claiming no mandate arrived when they never set up the committee to deliver a mandate, and they're basically blaming the citizens for not rallying around a single mandate and providing that, even though that was kind of a new criteria that's emerged now that they want to kill it. Yeah, that was one of the biggest things for me, is the blame was everywhere except on themselves. It was, oh, Canadians weren't engaged. Oh, there was no consensus. Oh, all of these other people. It's everyone else's fault. It wasn't, oh, we didn't have a preference. It was, you didn't come to us and come with a clear answer to a question we weren't going to ask you. Like, I get not wanting to say, yeah, we fucked this up and we're not going to get around to it. Sorry, guys. It's an utter failure of leadership on the Liberals' part to just not take the necessary steps to find out an answer to the question, to drape their feet, to throw in new criteria, new approaches to it, and not tell anybody until you're using that to change your mind and kill the, kill the idea. It was just completely bundled from the start. It took months longer to get the committee going. They weren't particularly well set up about who got what seats on the committee. It was just a huge mess from the start. And now we're kind of seeing it bear fruit in terms of not delivering a mandate. And the problem was they never asked the question to Canadians on it. They put out this bullshit survey that had no useful value to actually determine what Canadians thought because it's so massively skewed in how they asked the question. They didn't ask the committee to deliver them a recommendation for a single system. They did none of the actual work that would have shown what the consensus was among Canadians. And it's not like there isn't a way to do that. People have put forward the idea of, you know, putting it to a referendum. It was one of the ongoing questions to the whole thing. You could have asked Canadians point blank, what do you think of these systems, either in a referendum or in a well-done survey? Well, and that's what some people point out happened in New Zealand when they finally got around. They put forward the referendum with two clear questions. First, do you want to change the system? And second, which of these would you prefer if we change it? And that way you can sort of answer both of those questions at once without having the frustrating, oh, I don't really like MMP and splitting people who prefer STV over MMP. And you can get a consensus around reform. Yeah, Canadians massively overthink the referendum issue. They're not that complicated. They're not that hard to set up. We always get caught on these rabbit trails of, oh, what if you make the question super weird or too hard to understand? And every other Commonwealth nation seems to manage to figure out how to write decent, clear referendums. The couple referendums they've had in Britain, they were clearly worded. Easy to understand, like, it's not a huge problem. Like, people knew when they were voting in the Scottish independence referendum what that meant. There was no, should we implement this decision that was made on this, you know, none of that stuff. It's not that hard to figure out a clear question that everybody can agree on. And we just massively overthink the whole problem. And we have examples of it being successfully implemented in New Zealand off a referendum. And it, hell, the Liberals could put that out there and use that to kill the thing if they really wanted to because actually that would provide a clear there is no actual mandate there well but perhaps it was all just we didn't come to the answer trudeau wanted which was arguably the ranked ballots well i don't think it's arguably he explicitly said that's his preferred system and so he's packing up and taking his toys away because nobody wanted to play nice or get along or agree that the liberals really should just have a system that 
massively favors them in most elections. But within the Liberal caucus, there have been a number of voices who are very pro-proportional representation, pro-reform, like our own Joyce Murray here, like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. A lot of them aren't speaking up right now. Erskine-Smith issued a long letter apologizing to his residents in the Huffington Post, which is a pretty brave thing in, to do to sort of go right against your party leader and prime minister. But everyone else seems really quiet. I've checked Joyce Murray, as far as I know, hasn't said anything on electoral reform, even though when she was campaigning to be leader, it was a big part of her platform that she was going to make a strategic voting alliance with the NDP and try to just get Harper out to get electoral reform in. But where's the liberal backbone now in all of these backbench MPs? Well, like most uh, backbench MPs these days, there really isn't much of one because all the incentives are towards following the party line. And the prime minister's office and the party leaders hold all the power. So it's not all that surprising that we haven't seen a bunch of backbench MPs kind of stand up and make a big deal of it. It's disappointing that that's how it's played out, but... That's just how Parliament's structured these days. Now, that may change. Michael Chong's been pushing for years now uh, as part of his Reform Act uh, that got neutered and as part of his leadership bid to basically empower MPs. And this has basically left him, oddly enough, as the standard bearer for democratic reform, kind of going forward at least in the short term, until the next election comes along, because he's the only one really campaigning hard on it at the moment. At least on the sort of center-center right, the NDP are having a lot of headway. Elizabeth May is rightly livid, because her whole career to this point has effectively been to establish this. She's made it that way. Yes, perhaps I misspoke a little on this. and Because it's the only one that's actively undergoing a vote uh, right now, he's kind of where all the focus, I think, is going to be on that, because it's, it's the only one that's where there's a chance to vote on the issue in the upcoming uh, couple of years. Well, and it's interesting because he doesn't actually, he's not actually pushing for electoral reform. He's pushing for a lot of sort of... Democrat, he calls it democratic yeah, reform. Well, there's, it's about how Parliament works. Yeah, and there are structural issues to help Parliament work more effectively, and I think those are important, and I think he has some good ideas on there. But he's been very smart at the messaging in this last week to go, oh, they flubbed electoral reform. At least I'm still doing democratic reform. And it's just this slight shift from, oh, you wanted proportional representation. Well, no, what you really want is just your voice to be heard, right? That's what you wanted. And so I will make it so your voice can be heard better. Never mind that it will still leave situations like we had in this last election in Quebec, where you had MPs elected with under 30% of the vote. They can be more independent from their party. But they're still in a riding where 70% of the population voted against them. And so you can reform Parliament as much as you want, but it won't fix the solution that electoral reform has been put forward for. Yeah, it only, it only goes part way, and that's definitely a valid criticism of the plan. But I think it's nevertheless an important aspect uh, to making our overall system more effective. Because right now, as we just noted with the fact that only one Liberal MP's really spoken up about it, despite this being a fairly major part of their election uh, platform, it does kind of go to show that a lot of these backbench MP's are basically there to fill a seat and uh, vote the way their leader tells them. And 
we might as well save 335 salar- MP salaries and just weight each of the leaders' votes appropriately based off the uh, number of ridings they win if we're not going to actually let the MPs do anything or say anything on their own. I'm sure they do some great work in committees and they do help their constituents interact with the government as appropriate. But yeah, you make a valid point. And I wonder from there how much this will harm the Liberals. I know a lot of people voted for Liberals in this last election, mostly to get Harper out, but with the sort of hope that there would be electoral reform such that Parliament would in the future reflect the Democratic will. There's some polling that Canadians aren't hugely invested in changing the voting system. It's never a first top priority issue, and I don't think it ever would be. But I have to sort of position that against, will people just be really angry that he broke a promise, and a very clear promise? Yeah, I don't think this is going to harm him too much in the long run. It, it only becomes a problem if it becomes part of the pattern of broken promises. And yeah, so far, he's not that far outside of where a party typically is at this stage of government. So I don't see it, especially in the first election, being that big a deal. I mean, this isn't quite as big a deal as, say, John Trichens promised to repeal the GST. And that was something Canadians cared more about, hit them more personally. And when that got broken, he went on to win several successive elections. So I just don't see this really being that big a deal if it just remains that, you know, something that 3 to 7% of the population puts as their primary issue it's something you know us politics nerds really care about and we're both pretty pissed that it's not going forward but for the average person i just don't see it really swinging their vote yeah i guess if this is followed up by no action on bill c51 which we haven't really seen if say the marijuana legalization takes a sharp turn or doesn't happen and we're still waiting on that there's supposed to be a bill coming yeah, soon that's another one and though i don't see really hurting the liberals that much if they don't follow through on it because it's another thing that only a few percent care about as a primary issue well but that's when you're starting to build this narrative yes and as you get these lists of promises and then there's the sort of oh he built the pipelines and he never promised not to but a lot of people still feel angry about that and he starts to really shave off And it would be a more left side of his party, but that's what helped bring down the NDP effectively and bring him into power and has really expanded his base. Maybe he can swing right and pick up some of there, but it would be a big shift at this point. Well, that's, of course, going to really depend on who the Conservatives put forward. Right now, the right flank of the party and the kind of liberal conservative swing voter, they aren't too happy about the $30 billion deficit. And there's a few things like that that are starting to weigh on the right side of the party a bit. And it hasn't been a huge deal when the conservatives are all focused inward on their own issues around their leadership race. But going forward, if he starts bleeding 5% on the left and 5% on the right, he can start being in quite a bit of trouble as the ground he occupies narrows significantly. This has been sort of good news for... The Conservatives, they didn't really want electoral reform and arguably give some more paths to victory in 2019 and beyond. 
In the short term, yes. Though, I've always thought the argument that the conservatives won't do well under a proportional system a little spurious. Because if you look in the post-war era, there's only been two elections that have resulted in a government winning with a majority of the popular vote. And those were Diefenbaker and Mulroney, both conservatives. So if history is any indication, it's not that the conservatives can't win under a proportional system. It's they're the only ones who can win under a proportional system, at least in the post-war era. Now, obviously, if you change it, the system is going to change how everyone plays those rules. And, you know, Harper never would have been able to pull off that Mulroney over 50% of the popular votes. And who the leader is really makes that difference, but I don't see it being the kiss of death for the Conservatives the way many in the Conservative Party and also the pundits outside of it saw it as. I wonder if it's almost more of a partisan kind of reaction where the people who really love the Conservative Party are worried that under a proportional system, their coalition, essentially, of all of these different aspects that come together as Conservatives, the social conservatives, the economic ones, the libertarians, if that will be at risk, because then you can break off and you can have a more successful Christian heritage party or a progressive conservative or reform party. And maybe they get together and make coalitions regularly, but they lose power. The people who are in power right now in the leadership of the conservative party don't have that. And maybe they're just afraid. Whereas on the left, where it's a bit more fractured, where you have the Greens, you have the NDP, you have the Liberals to some extent, people already see it fractured and they go, it's not going to fracture that much more and there'll be more paths to victory because we've already done the calculus. Yeah, and that is the thing is parties could fracture quite significantly. I can also see where you might get a case of the social conservatives splitting off, but at and, you know, maybe don't do the Christian Heritage Party or something. But at the same time, if you get rid of those, suddenly a lot of kind of the center to the right half of the liberals, suddenly they're not so concerned that conservatives are going to be rolling back on all these social issues. And they might fracture off and go join the more economically oriented conservative party. There's just a lot of potential scenarios there, and it's really hard to predict ahead of time. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be something we're going to get to experience one way or the other. Speaking of how the Greens and the NDP are going to do, what do you think their long-term position is going to be coming out of this whole situation? It's very frustrated. They're going to try and position themselves to be the champions going forward on electoral reform. But we're far enough away from an election that people aren't going to be talking about this in two years. Like, this has killed electoral reform potentially for another generation. And the NDP is going to keep it in their platform, but it's going to be really hard to bring it back up. I imagine we'll see leadership candidates talking a lot about it in the NDP. They'll probably all be mostly in agreement that they like multi-member proportional. Maybe one will bring out a more radical idea or something else. But it's going to be tough for them to really keep the momentum going because the Liberals just took it all away. Yeah, it definitely puts them in a tough position and... They will be probably trying to peel off some of those disaffected liberals on the issue, but I don't see it being particularly successful, and maybe they'll try something down the road a bit where they'll introduce a private member's bill to implement the committee's report or something, try and stir up a little bit of 
that going forward, but I have a hard time seeing how they're going to gain traction outside of the people who've been following this issue and really care about it. Which, as we mentioned, isn't a huge amount in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's going to take them building that message that the liberals are breaking promises, they're breaking promises, and then they can reference back to this as one of those broken promises. But beyond that, I think we have to wait for NDP majority government or coalition before there's a chance to bring this back. And who knows if and when that could ever happen. Uh, One of the interesting parts of the mandate letter that hasn't gotten a huge amount of press is the instruction for the new minister to coordinate with the Minister of National Defense, Public Safety, and to work with the Communication Security Establishment, which is basically our version of the NSA, uh, to analyze the risks of Canada's electoral system with respect to cyber attack. And we've kind of seen there's been issues with the use of cyber attacks to gather compromising information about candidates by interested nations and then using that to try and influence the outcome of an election. So I will have to give them props for this, that this is emerging as a serious threat to the Western democratic system, and it's good they're paying attention to it, and they're seriously grappling with it. Yeah, it's one of those things that needs to get dealt with, and it's good to see them taking it on. The NDP is trying to play this off as a red herring to distract from the broken promise, but the Democratic Reform Minister always had a number of issues to look at beyond electoral reform, and this is a good one to take on right now. Yeah, it needs to be done, and it's nice to see the Liberals take national security seriously on uh, this front. Moving on to our second segment, Carbon Leaks. Looks like the NDP might have a mole in their organization feeding info to the Liberals, because the BC Liberals have gotten a hold of an internal NDP document about their uh, climate change plans, and they've Put, basically put out press release decrying this horrible NDP secret plan to implement the federal government's carbon tax requirements and basically decrying what everybody knew was coming, everybody was expecting to happen because that's what the Liberals said, and oddly enough, basically going against the carbon tax, which is their signature policy over the last 10 years. Yeah, everything in the BC Liberals messaging was very confused but angry today. The NDP had planned to, and did, hold a press conference with John Horgan at about 12.30 to announce this BC NDP climate plan to go into the election. Only the Liberals preempted it by like an hour and a half and were all over Twitter and their website bragging about, we got the NDP talking points And look, it's a tax and spend. They're just going to raise taxes and spend money on their pet projects. Only, like you said, all the NDP's goals are are to meet the federal liberal target of raising the carbon tax to $50 a ton by 2022. And they're going to wait until 2020 to start raising it. And they will put that money towards green jobs, which is pretty ill-defined in the talking points and the messaging they put out today. 
and some kind of climate rebate check that'll go to 80% of British Columbians. We don't know how much that is. We don't know if it'll be progressive or just $100 a person, sort of a Ralph Buck style payment. Like It's not that controversial of a plan because there's not a lot of meat in it. And the meat that's there is, this is what the liberals will probably have to do. I mean, maybe they won't put as much money to green jobs or checks. They'll just do middle class tax cuts like they've been doing. But they just went so like full on tax and spend NDP on this. And it was just absurd. It was a little absurd. But with a plan as vague as the NDP document was, it's one of those things where you can really kind of paint onto it anything you want. And reading over the document that they've linked to, I've coming away with it more confused than anything else on exactly what the NDP's plans are. They talk about investing in jobs, but that's a little vague. Are we going to see a bunch of handouts to green energy companies? Are we going to see you know, incentives for feed-in tariffs or something, or subsidies? Who knows? There just isn't a lot of detail in there at all. Are we going to see kind of the, you know, picking winners and losers where they pick a few high-profile companies and throw a bunch of money at them. We just don't know. And that's kind of the thing that really stands out to me, is I really actually don't know what the NDP's plan are after reading this. I have no idea if it's revenue neutral or not. The investing part would suggest it isn't, but it's still very vague. I'll give them full credits for referencing the climate leadership team's recommendations. This is the task force essentially set up by... Christy Clark to look at how should BC meet its climate targets. And it made a nice report that a lot of people signed on to and a lot of environmentalists and a lot of, I think even industry was pretty okay with it because everyone sort of agreed this, this is what we have to do forward. It's much like the climate plans put out in Alberta where there was broad sign on only the Clark liberals trashed it and said, no, we're not going to do most of that. We'll sort of find our own way to meet our targets and we won't harm jobs. And so now we have the BC Liberals who brought in the carbon tax, but that was under Gordon Campbell, now switching to the sort of, well, we'll keep it, but everyone else has to do a lot better before we'll think about doing anything. And so I think this might not be a lot, but it does give the NDP the upper hand to at least say, we want to do something. And we have goals that we're setting out that we want to sort of at least meet the federal government's targets. And we do want to bring our total emissions down as we're supposed to in this province. The green response was also really interesting because Andrew Weaver has been all over Twitter today, angry at this plan because, like you say, it's a bit thin on the details. And he's also, of course, upset that the liberals are becoming climate laggards, as it were. And he's hinting that they have a plan, but he's not going to show it to us yet. And so he's got lots of complaints, but he's sort of just, we're the Greens, so you can trust us. We have a plan. His response really seems to be kind of just rest on the laurels of the Green Party's reputation. And I'm sure we'll see something coming out before the election, but right now it just seems sour grapes that someone's trying to butt into his territory. The one thing that did kind of stick out to me a bit in the NDP's document they put together on it was... They spent a fair bit of time talking about how people shouldn't pay for it. It should all be on kind of the corporations and whatnot to pay for it. But at the same time, not harming competitiveness. And that was something that struck me as a bit of a 
disconnect on their thinking on this. And I'm a little unclear on how they're going to try and bridge that gap because the BC Liberals did it by lowering the corporate taxes in conjunction with raising the carbon tax so everything balanced out more or less. But if all the money's going to individuals, how are the NDP going to maintain that balance and without hurting the competitiveness on it? And maybe that subsidy they're hinting at is going to do it, but at the same time, that's really going to be a pretty focused thing. And it also ignores the, I think, bigger underlying problem is that almost all of the pollution is because consumers are wanting to buy certain goods and that people should absolutely have to pay for that damage because if people didn't want to buy cars and drive them around, you wouldn't have Etzon pumping all this uh, carbon polluting uh, fuel around because there'd be no demand for it. I've seen the Alberta NDP talking heads put out a number of graphs since their carbon tax came in on January 1st to try to show, look, there was an initial spike in gas prices, but they've come back down to where they were. But the point of the carbon tax isn't supposed to be that gas doesn't change in price. It's supposed to be that gas does get more expensive and slowly gets more and more expensive such that you don't want to drive as much. And you can find ways to offset that. But the fact that gas is going back to the same price it would have otherwise means your carbon tax isn't high enough because you need to affect behavior. That's what the point of these taxes are to do. If all you're doing is just skimming some money then you're at the real risk of being justly criticized as just pocketing the change to fuel your pet projects. Yeah, and that's the other thing that strikes me about this is that $50 just isn't very much money on this. And basically, nobody in Canada is really proposing anything near the levels that are required. I think Michael Chan's $130 is, that's kind of the lowish end of effective on what you actually need to put the carbon tax at to really hit the climate targets we've got. Minimum, you need to be hitting three digits on the price per ton. And that's with a very responsive market. Realistically, we're probably looking at somewhere between 125 to 200 to get any sort of significant reduction in emissions. And our emissions have definitely gone down since we introduced the TATS in 2008, but that's on a per capita basis. And with a growing population, the overall emissions have increased slightly as a result. And the big chunk of that reductions is arguably the downturn after 2008 and just sort of a slowing economy releases less greenhouse gases. And so as the economy starts to rev up again, you know, we could overshoot where we were going down to yes and um they do mention a bit about smart regulation but who knows what that means and it wouldn't surprise me if smart regulation when actually run through the political process turns into dumb regulation that's costly and not all that effective so i'm just not really sure where this is going i think the liberals are missing a big opportunity here to preempt the ndp on this one and bump it up to $60 or $70 or something beyond the NDP thing and at least have the argument of do we want to do a high carbon tax, low regulation regime or medium regulation, medium carbon tax that the NDP are proposing and 
that's just not happening. And that's disappointing to me on the policy front that we're not having this discussion, really. And it's just unfortunate that the leader of the Liberals doesn't really seem to have anything in the way of political courage and only reacts when her back is to the wall and it looks like she's really going to take a hit otherwise. Yeah, I don't think the BC Liberals are going to do that. I think Christy Clark has managed to undo their like climate leader reputation that Gordon Campbell had put forward and that sort of policy. So their new thing is we're going to keep things as they are and let others take the you know, climate leadership. Maybe the Green Party, when they do release their plan, I imagine they will have a higher price on carbon. Maybe they'll go to 100 and forecast some brave ways of bringing us there. And maybe they'll present a strong vision for how to make BC a climate leader again and not just sort of meet what the federal government is asking us to do. Bringing it back to where we started, the leak itself, I don't think, was that damaging for the BC NDP. Their plan was coming out anyway today, and having your plan released 90 minutes by the enemy isn't the end of the world. They can still talk around it, and they can still put forward their messaging. What I think is worrying, though, is either the Liberals hacked in or someone is feeding information out. How long ago did the Liberals get a hold of this? It's hard to say, but they did have infographics and pulled quotes from 2008 that I saw they put on their Twitter of when the NDP was actually against the carbon tax. So maybe they had a couple days to sort of put this all together and just really preempt the NDP's announcement. And that'll be worrying for them if this kind of embarrassment keeps happening, because that's the kind of narrative that shows you're not really ready to govern. Let's run through a number of other stories. First, the parliamentary budget officer came out today criticizing the government for effectively not spending money fast enough. The budget officer has gone through pretty much every government department and tried to figure out where the $13.6 billion in infrastructure money that the government wanted to spend this year, where's that gone? And he was able to account for about $4.6 billion And so there's sort of an extra $9 billion that hasn't been spent. And his report really criticized the government on just a sort of lack of transparency at getting this information out and how much effort he had to go to figure this out and just the general delays in spending money. This was a big part of the Liberals' stimulus plan. There's effectively, here's how we're going to get the economy going again. It's sort of economic action plan 2.0 and now we don't even have the signs that harper put up saying project coming yeah and that's who i think is really hurting here's the sign makers they're, they're not getting their cut of this but uh, seriously this doesn't really surprise me all that much major infrastructure purchases aren't the sort of thing you can suddenly kick into high gear It takes months of planning, consultations, design work. Even if they started projects when they announced their budget, they'd only be getting done the the engineering now if they're lucky. And that's before they've even broken ground. For, you know, major civil projects, there's all sorts of surveys you have to do, environmental assessments, you know, geotechnical surveys, archaeological survey. Like, there's just a lot of stuff that goes into these sorts of projects before the first shovel ever hits the ground. And it 
really does not surprise me that they only managed to find enough stuff to do 4.6 billion. In fact, 4.6 is kind of a little impressive for shovel-ready projects in under a year. But it's just not the sort of thing that I think anybody who like really knows infrastructure spending was expecting them to be able to suddenly roll out 13.6 billion dollars on. But that kind of goes to the point of why then promise it. It's a bunch of show and not much to show for it. And they were more focused on actually rolling it out in the most effective manner, not where we get the most headlines. They probably wouldn't have done much in their first budget beyond making some you know smallish program changes here and there and then ramped it up in year two and three. Once they've identified this stuff, they would have budgeted some money to start the processes, but they wouldn't have actually put all that money that was actually supposed to be used to, you know, build stuff until year two or three of their mandate. And they would have spent a couple billion on getting those ready to go so they could then hit the button, hit the go button when the time came and things were actually in place. So I can't fault them too much for not falling through, but I can definitely fault them for being a bunch of opportunists when it comes to the headlines and not presenting an accurate picture of the realities of infrastructure. In local media news, the Vancouver Sun and the province are losing 20 people due to downsizing. This has been an ongoing trend in Canadian media for years now. I didn't even know they still had 20 employees between them, so I guess that's good news. It is disappointing. It is frustrating. Some big names are leaving the sun, of course. The one I'm most familiar with is Peter O'Neill. I always enjoyed his columns, but for the most part, these are the people who are taking voluntary buyouts or taking their sort of early retirements, as it were. Bell Media is also laying off a few people at TSN Vancouver's office and at CTV Vancouver, and it's just the local media shrinking that much more. The Georgia Strait covered this nicely, and most of these will be announced in the next week. But at a time when journalism and reporting is more and more crucial, it's frustrating to see these layoffs because we rely on these kind of voices to let us know what's happening so that we can bitch and complain about it and make our uninformed opinions. These are the people who have the resources and the access to go and find out what's going on and try to report it. Post media is dying and it's being bled to death and it's just painful to watch at this point. We talked last week about the report the government received about how to restructure Canadian media and there's no simple answer and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's disagreeable in that but something's got to change. There's new fundraising numbers out for the conservative leadership race and it seems like Maxime Bernier has actually taken over the fundraising lead over Kelly Leach. Maxime Bernier brought in a fairly impressive $586,000 from 3,853 contributors, which is a significant step up from number two, uh, Kelly Leach, who had 355000 from 1,808 donors, so more than twice the number of donors and a significant increase in funds raised. So in terms of fundraising, he's definitely out in front on the amount of money he's managed to raise, the number of people who are 
financially supporting his campaign. And we've mentioned in the past that some of the polling numbers are pretty terrible because there just aren't a huge number of conservative party members, something like 90,000 in the country. And it's hard to get good polling on such a small group so dispersed across the country. So these can actually be kind of useful in terms of seeing where the race is. And in that sense, Bernier definitely has the strongest lead of like serious supporters. But with 14 people in the race and a ranked ballot, I think the most we can tell from that is he's going to do well in the first round. And once people start getting eliminated and votes getting redistributed, it's a lot more up in the air. And these are fourth quarter numbers. So Kevin O'Leary hadn't entered the race at that point. So we have no indication of how he's doing comparatively. And in terms of the other people who did fairly well, Andrew Shear, Aaron O'Toole, and Michael Chong all did fairly well with upper three digits in terms of number of supporters and uh, over a quarter million each. So they're performing well, but you can definitely see where the front runner is. But we're still two months out from the membership deadline and even further out from the actual vote. So there's still a lot of time to go in this race and uh, be interesting to see how it shades out. In other conservative leadership race news, Nick Tuvalis? How do you... Cuckvalis. <laughs> I think that's how it's pronounced. Cuckvalis. That's what I'm going to call him from now on. The uh, campaign manager for Kelly Leach and a rather controversial figure has resigned from the campaign. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with him, his previous work includes Rob Ford among others, and is kind of the conservative shock jock of campaign managers. Nick's the guy behind Kelly Leach's Canadian values strategy, and he's pushed this idea of courting the alt-right in Canada, and so I have no remorse that he is resigning and disappearing from her campaign, at least for now. What triggered this all is a couple days ago he on Twitter, got into a spat with Emmett McFarlane, who, if you're not following, you should. He's a political science professor from Waterloo and constitutional expert. Nick, for whatever reason, decided to call him a cuck, which is basically just a snarl word now for the alt-right to complain about people they don't like. Basically anyone not as rigidly ideological as they are. And so this spat blew up, and Nick became a distraction for his candidate, which is basically the number one thing a campaign manager is not supposed to do. It's not supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be about your candidate. And so he's resigning disgracefully, as it were. Yeah, I'm not sad to see him go. I think he's definitely a significant contributor to the overall lowering of the discourse uh, in Canadian politics. Uh, we'll see if he resurfaces in any other campaign. But does leave Kelly Leach in a bit of an awkward position because he was kind of the mastermind behind the, in my opinion, somewhat questionable Canadian values campaign. And without that, kind of what else does she have? And it was already hard to sell pulling off the anti-establishment candidate thing before. And I'm not sure without somebody who has this kind of dark insights into those... Uh, corners she's going to be able to pull it off any better so yeah this might uh be the start of her campaign slowly sliding into the background we'll just have to see turning finally to provincial news 
the foreign buyer tax that was brought in very quickly last summer in a rushed emergency setting is getting tweaked around the edges as the government realizes creating a policy in a couple nights maybe isn't always the best policy. Specifically, they're looking at lifting the tax for people who have work permits. So if you are a foreigner, but you're working in BC and you buy a house so that you can live here while you work, they go, well, then you're not the evil foreigners that we're worried about. And they're also looking at maybe refunding the taxes of some people who, after they buy, would qualify to not have to pay it if it's within a reasonable amount of time, maybe six months or a year or something. It's a lot of this, oops, oh, we're going to fix this now kind of policy making, which really shows how sloppily this was implemented and how opportunistic, I guess it was. Yeah, when it was first announced, it was very much a seat of their pants approach to the whole thing and kind of thrown together quickly. Yeah, it ran into a lot of problems where stuff was kind of just put in place super quick. People got caught unaware. There were issues with people having to pull out of deals they'd signed and whatnot because suddenly it was 15% more expensive. And I mean, I, there's a whole lot of problems with it. I wasn't a huge fan of the idea in the first place. I think it's kind of a distraction from the bigger issues in the housing market. But this kind of does help mitigate some of the self-inflicted damage done by the uh, foreign buyer's tax. And that has been Politicos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politicos.ca. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PoliticosPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.